0: In the name of God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning. Welcome to all of you who are here this morning. Welcome to all of you who are viewing online. So glad to have you all with us this morning. I'm reminded uh, as I was reading the passage from Philippians about a vacation that Amy and I had before we had children. We had what may have been a once-in-a-lifetime chance to go to Italy. We had free airline tickets. That's a funny story in itself. We had uh, we stayed at hostels uh, across Italy. We did the whole thing on a shoestring. It was a fantastic trip. But one of the greatest memories came from this little area on the northwest coast of Italy called Cinque Terre. I don't know if you've ever been... Cinque but it is it's stunning it is uh, Cinque Terre means five lands and it is five little storybook towns um, with different multicolored stucco buildings built on the side of the mountain that comes right down into the Mediterranean and you know it's a cool place because that's where they invented pesto so we're all thankful for Cinque Terre but um, you, can't, you cannot drive in the towns, you can barely even drive to the towns. Uh, you have to take this little milk train that runs between them, or you can walk the most beautiful path that I have ever seen in my life. And I have seen a lot of hiking trails. Um, you're walking through these olive groves with the sun that is just beginning to set over the Mediterranean on your left, uh, the, sun, the mountains on your right are shining brightly, and that's just setting sun, and you're eating focaccia bread that is making you want to cry that you just got in the last village. And, and this was before digital cameras, and I went through a lot of film on that hike because I, every, everywhere I looked, I could not not take a picture. It was unbelievably beautiful. I remember that we, we did not talk a lot on that hike. We were just overwhelmed by the beauty that was all around us and just felt so privileged to be there. I don't know if you've ever been to a place like that, where you just felt overcome by the beauty all around you. Uh, Or maybe it wasn't so much a a place, maybe it was um, like a a thing, like a cause that just captivated your heart you know, like it was just, it kept you up at night thinking. About, you were so excited about this cause, this uh, this this calling, this thing that you felt so passionate about, and and everything else in your life just kind of faded into the background, and this one thing came into focus. Or maybe, you know, love can do that too. Maybe this is the way that you view your spouse, or you used to anyway. But um, I, <laughs> it's kind of a cheap shot, but um. I, I, uh, I ask that I bring this up because it's, I, think, I really think this is what's going on with Paul in our letter in the passage from the letter to the Philippians uh, he has met Jesus and everything else has just faded into the background for Paul uh, all the stuff that used to seem really important has lost its importance in the light of Christ so we're in our third week of four weeks, looking at Paul's letter to the Philippians, and uh, last week, if you remember, Paul gave us um, as the model of humility a, a sort of a biography, a, s- a summary of Jesus's life. It was a hymn that said he came down from heaven, being born in human likeness. He took on the nature of a servant, humbled himself to death on a cross and was exalted by the Father so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You remember that? Well, this week, Paul kind of gives us his own story. And in some ways, it's in response, I think, to that story, that hymn that he has given us. Is it, uh, Paul doesn't give us the Damascus Road account. That's uh, You can go read about that wonderful story in Acts chapter 9. But rather... Paul gives us his resume before he met Christ, and then he gives us his resume after he met Christ. So, first, we want to look at his resume before he met Christ, sort of BC, and it is impressive. It's impressive. You, you of course, know our resume describe we use those to describe what we do and we use them to justify uh, why we should be accepted. So, for instance, if we're applying to college or applying for a job, we send them our resumes uh, and uh, and has this list, you know, of everything we've accomplished, uh, all the grades that you got, all the jobs that you've held, all the certificates that you've acquired. And they are all meticulously curated to sound very impressive no i wasn't just on the accounts payable team but i boldly led the accounts payable team if you've written a resume recently that's what you you kind of have to use that sort of language our resumes are important in that way and even if we're not applying for anything we tend to bring out our resumes fairly often particularly i think if we've been if we felt slighted we felt put off in some way give you a few examples Uh, don't talk to me that way i founded this company it's my resume i founded the company or after all i've done for you here's my resume right i've taken the trash out every day for the last three weeks it's your turn here's my resume um We appeal to our resumes over and over because on some level, we believe that what we have done defines or in some sense justifies who we are or what we have a right to. And we actually encourage this from a very early age. You know, what's the most common question that we ask the children? What do you want to be when you grow up? And we don't expect them to answer, well, I want to be a woman of great character or I want to be a man of deep faith. Right? We say, uh, we, we expect them to define themselves by a career, by what they're going to do. I want to be a teacher or an astronaut or a football player. And before he met Christ, St. Paul was really no different. His given name, if you remember, was Saul. And he was super religious. And he was the best at being religious. Uh, He was the Pharisee's Pharisee. He had the religious resume to be all religious resumes. Uh, From the day he was born, he was raised in the faith. He kept the law perfectly. He was the best student of the best teachers. He was the most zealous for his Pharisaical faith. That's who he was. That's how he viewed himself. That's how he expected others to view him. He was the rising star. He was on the fast track. And you know, he was, he was surely well acquainted with that pride that comes when, I mean, you have to hide it, you know, feigned humility, but it comes when others are jealous of you, right? And, and, and they were jealous of his gifts and of the favor he was getting with the most powerful rabbis. It motivated him to keep his foot on the gas. Now, I'm not criticizing Saul's pursuit of excellence in his career. We should all work as hard as we can at what we're given to do. Yes, there is a danger in making our work our sole identity. I've preached on that before. That, those aren't my points. My point is this. That when Jesus appeared to Saul, and Saul saw Jesus for who Jesus really was, Saul was overcome with the beauty of Christ that everything else in that light sort of just faded away. After Saul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, as he learned his new faith, uh, as he grew in his personal relationship with Jesus, everything changed for Saul. Everything that once seemed so important suddenly paled into comparison. It would sort of be like if you lived your whole life by moonlight and then found the sun for the first time in your life. I mean, all the little lamps that you had to uh, get your light from, they suddenly just wouldn't seem so important anymore. With Jesus, there was a brightness to Paul's life that he uh, a brightness to his faith that he had never even known could exist. When the light of Christ shone on him, when the love of Christ enveloped him, when the call to proclaim Christ arrested him, his resume changed. The way he saw himself, the way he wanted to be viewed, he was no longer the Pharisee of Pharisees, no longer the star student or the perfect law keeper. He was no longer the sum of his accomplishments and hard work. Suddenly, all the religious work that had once seemed to Paul so beautiful and worthy, it seemed darker. Maybe even uh, sullied or marred by his own self-interested ambition. What had seemed like religious zeal, a good thing, was now revealed to be self-righteousness. What had seemed like perfect obedience to the letter of the law, now was revealed to be callous ignorance to the spirit of the law. And now, in the light of Christ, the only thing that really seemed beautiful was Christ Himself. You know, it's like when there's really nice photographs where everything's blurry except for the subject, the one subject, and it draws your eye right to it. You know, like like all of us, Paul had been the own he'd been the subject in Paul's own photograph. He was the main thing that he was looking at, but suddenly Jesus becomes the subject, and everything else just gets blurry for Paul, because that's what mattered. In other words, Paul no longer identified himself by what he accomplished, but he identified himself by Jesus and what Jesus had accomplished for him. And This morning, all I really want for us to see is what Paul saw. When Paul found Jesus, he did not find this angry deity who attacked him for his misplaced zeal. He didn't find a furrowed brow or crossed arms or a wagging finger. He just found this beautiful Savior whose invitation was magnetic, whose love was overwhelming, whose grace was so pure, whose joy was contagious, and whose forgiveness was unrelenting. Paul saw that what he thought was so beautiful about himself and was actually arrogance and self-promotion, but that was swallowed up by the gospel's good news that Jesus had died for his sins and risen to give him new, to give him new life. To the point that he could say, I count it all loss. I count it all Loss. Everything that I used to be, everything that I worked so hard for, studied so hard for, I count it all loss compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I've lost everything I've worked for, Paul said, but I'm not sad about it. I actually count it as rubbish. He says he counts it as rubbish. Now, I don't mind telling you that that English word, rubbish, is a slightly more polite word than the Greek word which it translates. Um, It steps, uh, no, it stinks when you step in it, is what I'm trying to say. And Paul uses this language that we might not expect of a biblical author because he's just urgent to make the point. He says, I'm not having a righteousness, a resume, uh, that comes from the law. Now my resume's changed. I've got a new resume. It's a righteousness that comes from Christ through faith. Paul says, all I want, all I want is is to know Christ the power of his resurrection. So much so, Paul says, that he wants to share in Christ's sufferings by becoming like him in his death. Is Paul crazy? No. He is just totally gobsmacked with the magnetic, gracious beauty of Jesus Christ. Now, it's a little hard, I think, to describe uh, this beauty that we're talking about. Because it's certainly not physical beauty. It's not really the goodness of the life that Jesus lived. It's, it's like if we could just take the majesty and the love and the grace and the holiness and the kindness and the sacrifice and the resurrection and the promise of joy in the midst of sorrow and the abiding uh, presence of the Holy Spirit and the hope of heaven and take all that and smush it into one person that we cannot see but who promised to never leave us or forsake us and who knows us and loves us more than we could possibly know or love ourselves. That's a little bit of what we're talking about. And it just would not do any good to stand up here and say to you, well, Paul counted it all lost, and so you should too. Because it doesn't work that way. We have to see what Paul sees. I do want to say that if if Jesus isn't the most beautiful and wonderful and consuming thing in our lives, then we haven't seen Jesus for who he really is. But if you're like me, I mean that happens all the time. So Mary should say, uh, I should say, when Jesus isn't the most beautiful, wonderful, consuming thing in our lives, then maybe we've taken our focus off of who He really is. And we've pro- probably forgotten to see, once again, we're so prone to it. We've forgotten to see the depth of our sin. Uh, in order to remember what a miracle forgiveness really is. We've let our heads and our hearts slip from seeing what really is so amazing about grace. And maybe we're still working on our righteousness resume rather than simply receiving the righteousness that comes from Christ. Paul declares, I regard everything as loss." the surpassing value of just knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. And I think in these anxious times, age of anxiety that we're living in, this, this era of uncertainty and division with so many things that are demanding our focus, our attention and declaring that they're the most important thing that regarding everything is lost for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ our Lord is probably pretty good advice. You know, every week, and when we come to church, but really every day, the gospel invites us to walk that beautiful path again. To assess where the focus of our hearts lie. And to turn again to have our eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Amen.